Last week, I started with a story um, of a time when I was in college. I was able to visit the Philippines on a mission trip. And I'm going to retell that story, and I'm going to tell the end of the story, as I promised last week. If you weren't here, uh, you'll get to hear the first part of the story as well. So when I was about 20 years old, I traveled to the Philippines with a basketball team. I used to be fairly good at basketball. I played point guard. My job on the team was to play basketball, draw a crowd to this missionary that we were traveling with. His name was Jody Crane. And Jody and his wife Barbara and their children had moved into this village in the Philippines 17 years previous to when I arrived there in 1997. And he was trained to go in and to learn how to learn a language and learn how to speak the gospel into that language. And he spent some time, about a year or two, learning the language to the point where he could then tell the gospel story to them. And added detail I didn't tell last week is that while he was learning about the culture and they were building him and his family a house, he noticed that nearly every night the men in the tribe would go out and around a fire they would dance and they would cut themselves and they would sacrifice chickens to the gods so that they would appease the gods from hurting them anymore. And so this just fueled his desire to tell them about Christ. And as he learned, he developed his language abilities, and he learned how to speak the gospel into their language. And he began to tell them the story of Jesus, and he started at the beginning. He started with creation, how we were created in God's image. Then he got to the fall of man, how we had fallen into sin, And yet God immediately had promised to send a redeemer to us. And he told them the stories of the Old Testament, how God was preparing his people for a Messiah or a king who would come. And then Jesus arrives on the scene. He begins to tell them about the incarnation, the birth of God among them, who had come to save the people from their sins. And the people became entranced with Jesus. He became their hero. Here's this man who, who really loves people, who can heal people. The average age, the, the, immortal, the mortality rate was 42 years old in the village because of malaria and hepatitis and other things that they dealt with in the village. And so the fact that Jesus was a healer just mesmerized them. And they began to understand Jesus' teaching, and they were fueled by that. And then they came to the end. They came to Holy Week and came to the cross. And Jody explained that Jesus died on the cross, and the people went into mourning. They stopped working, and where I left you last week, the chief of the village came to Jody, and he said, Jody, please tell me this is not the end of the story. Please tell me you didn't lead us here to leave us in this place, because the people are in mourning, and they have stopped working, and the whole economy of our village is faltering. And so at this point, Jody had planned the telling of the story of Jesus and the resurrection to coincide on Easter Sunday. And everyone got up and they had a sunrise service and he told the village about Jesus. And the people started going crazy. But before they did that, let me tell you how how they got to that point of just throwing this incredible party because Jesus had been raised from the dead. It started like this. Jody told them about the resurrection and there was dead silence for minutes. They were totally awestruck and dumbfounded at what they had heard. Who had ever heard anything like this before? A man being raised from the dead. They they couldn't get their minds around it, and it, it was minutes of waiting for anyone to respond. 
And Jody waited. And then the chief stood up and he said, I believe in Jesus. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe we no longer need to sacrifice chickens to the gods and cut ourselves to appease the gods. I believe in Jesus, me and my family. And then he pointed to the next person in the village, the, the second in command, and he pointed with his lips. And he said, that's how they did it. You know, how about you? And then it went down. The second guy stands up. He says, I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for my sins. I believe he was raised from the dead. I believe that I no longer have to sacrifice anything for my sins. Jesus has paid for it. What about you? And it went down the line. The first 15 families in the village, the leading 15 families, all became Christians, all of them, all their families. And I had the opportunity when I was there to attend worship with them, and I'll close the sermon with a story of what it was like to be in worship with them. But I want you to think about the story of the resurrection from this perspective. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then everything changes. Everything changes about the story. Everything changes about this. Let's think about it. What would, what would change? Well, Jody would have never gone there. Why would you? He would have never gone there. If he did, he would have probably been like the other people who were there in the village that day, who were Western, it was, they, were, they, were, they were representatives of a Western conglomerate trying to buy their beach land at pennies on the dollar because for them, they have nothing. We would have treated these people only as dollar signs, as what we could get out of them, how we could use them. We wouldn't treat them as people who are made in God's image, but Jody was there to counsel them that week about that situation that they were in. How would it have changed? These people would still be alone. They would still be sacrificing chickens and cutting themselves to the gods. These people would be lost in their sin. But because the resurrection is true, because of the ending of the story is true, because Luke 24 is true, just as true as we believe Luke 1 through 23 is, Jesus is alive, and so everything changes. Everything changes because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, I grew up in youth group, and um, one of my youth group leaders said to me one time, I was struggling as a 14, 15-year-old with the resurrection, and did it really happen? And I was asking questions about it, and he said this to me. You know, Corey, those are good questions. Think about it this way. Even if the resurrection is not true, you should still be a Christian because you can live a good moral life. Christians are good people, and you should be a Christian anyway, even if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. You know what? That's a lie. Paul would utterly disagree with my youth leader. We're not going to teach that in youth group, by the way. Um, would utterly disagree with my youth leader at the time. He actually said so in the verse that comes before our assurance of parting grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If all we have to hope for is this life in Christ, if this is it, then we are to be pitied more than all men. We are to be pitied. But then he goes on to say, but the resurrection is true, and so everything changes. So we're going to look today at just how profound the change is that the resurrection brings. First of all, we're going to talk about Jesus' ministry of resurrection. We're going to look back on the first part of Luke, 
everything that comes before. And we're going to understand that everything that Jesus did from Luke 1 to 23 completely hinges on the resurrection being true. And then we're going to talk about the morning of the resurrection. We're going to walk through the events of Luke 24 with the women and the disciples and Peter. And then finally, we're going to ask the more future-oriented question from that time or what's going on currently. How should everything change because of the resurrection? What is the meaning of the resurrection? So we're going to start with the ministry and then the morning of the resurrection and then the meaning of the resurrection. Let's start with the ministry of resurrection. So there's three things I'd like to highlight for you that would completely change about Jesus' ministry if the resurrection is not true. If you take out Luke 24, then Luke 1 through 23 loses its value. First of all, Jesus taught throughout his ministry that those who repent and believe in him will be given eternal life. This is what Jesus taught to us. And one of the most, uh, the stories is told the most often to typify this life that Jesus gives to all who turn to him as the prodigal son in Luke 15. Think about how this story would change. If you recall, there's a father with two sons, and the younger son goes off, and he spectacularly messes his life up. He spends all of his money, all of his father's money. He goes and he makes more mistakes than the average person. I mean, he completely and totally squanders everything to where he's lost, utterly lost, He comes to his senses, returns to his father. The father, an unbelievable picture of love, throws his arms around the son. He says, son, I don't just forgive you, but I restore you completely to me and to our family and to your inheritance. And at the end, the father says, why are they throwing this huge party for the son? He says, my son was dead and now he is alive again. He was lost, and now he is found. Here's the point. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, then he cannot make dead sons alive in real life. This story of the prodigal son is just a story. It's just a parable. It's just a story about moralism and and the hope of, of life change, but there's no power, there's no teeth to it. But because Jesus is raised from the dead, he can really make dead sons alive. He really throws parties in heaven for every sinner who repents, as it says also in Luke chapter 15. This is not a metaphor of deep personal change. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, we can have life life in him. So first of all, Jesus has taught in his ministry that those who repent and believe in him will be given eternal life, and this would not be true without the resurrection. Second of all, Jesus taught throughout his ministry that we as his disciples are called to die to ourselves that we can then live for God. We're called to die to ourselves and then live for God. This is fundamental to Jesus' teaching, but he teaches it in Luke 9, 23 and 24, where he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What he's saying is, I'm calling you to die to yourself spiritually and, if need be, to die for me physically and to trust me that I will make you alive. He's tying an inseparable link 
between you dying to yourself and dying for Christ and living for him. But if there is no actual resurrection, what happens to this call of Jesus if we die to ourselves spiritually? At best, this is just self-help moralism for people who need to embrace uh, change or their shortcomings in their life. There's no power to it. In fact, it's just it's incredibly mean. If, if Jesus is calling you to die to your own personal desires and dreams, and if need, need, to, need be to die for him physically, and he's telling this to his best friends, that he's not a nice guy, he's not a good teacher. C.S. Lewis said if that is what he's actually doing, and he's not actually raised from the dead, then he's like a devil, because he's telling you to trust him and to give, you, to give him everything when he's actually not giving you what he promises on his end. So if Luke 24 is not true, it changes everything about what Jesus teaches about dying to ourselves. And third of all, Jesus showed us throughout Luke, he has the power to physically heal people, that he's even able to resurrect human bodies from death. If you remember back to Luke 7, Jesus is on his journey, and he walks through a small town called Nain. And there's a widow there. She's already lost her husband, and now she's lost her only son. And she's utterly alone, and Jesus walks up to the casket in the middle of the funeral procession. This would have been a very public uh, moment where they're journeying down this hill out of the town to go bury the son. And Jesus walks up to the casket, and he taps the casket and he tells them to stop. And Jesus then raises the son from the dead so that it says the dead son sat up and was alive and gave him back to his mother. It's an unbelievable, it's a beautiful story. But the reality is if Luke 24 is not true, then this is just an isolated event. You know what happened? That mother went on and she died. And that son grew older, and he died again. This is, an, this is an encouraging miracle that we can look to. But if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then he cannot make us alive now. He cannot make that son alive for eternity. Then death has the final word. Death gets the last word. It gets the final sting. But because Jesus was raised from the dead, this boy has been raised, not just to life once, but twice in the end, if he trusts in Jesus. Unless the resurrection is real, only if Jesus is raised can we be sure that millions and millions of other resurrections will follow this one resurrection. So you see in our age of scientific rationalism, there are many people who will say, I believe in Jesus, I believe he was a good teacher, I even believe he died on the cross as a sacrificial picture of how to love people, but they will not believe in the resurrection. They will stop at Luke 23 and not believe Luke 24. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus knew and everything was predicated on his future resurrection in the way that he ministered to people. You can't pull the resurrection out of Luke 1 through 23. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. So Jesus' resurrection absolutely is crucial. It has to happen as Jesus foreshadowed and told his disciples and that's why that's that's why this next section is so important so it's not just um, looking at 
the resurrection from that perspective. Let's also look at the morning of the resurrection. The morning of the resurrection, starting in verse 1. So very early in the morning, it says, we only learn in verse 10 that those who are mentioned, when it says they went to the tomb, we only learn in verse 10 that the they is these women. Uh, These women who are Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. They were there. Uh, When Jesus was carrying his cross, they were there at the crucifixion, and now they are there. They're the first ones to go to the tomb. They're anxious to go prepare the body of the Lord for burial. But in verse 2, they get there, and they find that this stone, which we learn in Matthew, that this stone is absolutely massive, and it needed an earthquake to be removed. It had rolled away, and it had scared the guards in the process so that the guards, it said, became like dead men. In verse 3, we learn they entered the tomb and they didn't find the body of Jesus. They don't put that together immediately that Jesus has been raised. They're in deep wonder when in verse 4, two angels appear to them and frighten them greatly. And the angels say to them, this is really important, why do you search for the living among the dead? He is not here because he is risen. Now, this is the first time we've seen angels in the book of Luke since when? A very famous account we go through every December. When the angels are there to announce the birth of Jesus. So God sends angels when? When he's going to proclaim to us some news that it's going to be really hard for us to believe. It's going to be really hard. I mean, this defies our understanding. God breaking into the world in the incarnation and in the resurrection is just completely out of our out of our grid. It's completely off the map for us, out of our experience. So God sends angels to announce that Jesus has defeated death in his resurrection. The angels go on to say something really important. They say, remember how Jesus told you when he was in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men, be crucified on the third day, and be raised again. Now, Jesus actually says this a lot in the Gospels. He actually tells his disciples and the women who are there with him, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed in the hands of sinful men. I'm going to be mocked, beaten, killed. I'm going to die on the cross, and on the third day I will rise again. And it's like for everybody, it was just like, what? I mean, how do you understand that? I mean, you're just walking along the road, and a man tells you that he's just going to do this, and he's going to be raised from that. It doesn't make any sense to them. But the angels say, remember how he told you, and then they remember. They remember. Jesus frequently tells, told us this, they thought to themselves. They at the time, this often happens in our lives, oftentimes we're learning and maybe we're listening to sermons or someone's telling us something, and we just don't have the categories yet to understand what people are teaching us, and we, we just don't understand. Sometimes it takes tens, hundreds of times, and then at the right moment, this knowledge that we have about who God is is matched with what God's speaking to our hearts, not usually through angels, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, speaking to our hearts, and we're like, oh, that's what Jesus meant, and God brings it home into our hearts. With God's help, we put it together, so the women run to tell the apostles what has happened and what is the disciples' reaction. Verse 11, they did not believe the women because it seemed like nonsense. Perhaps they're thinking, 
as men often do, these women, I mean, this is a hard time. You know, they're clearly emotional right now. They're just not in their, they're not in their right minds. We're, we're just not, I'm just, I can't understand. They're crying a lot, and I just don't get it. And so the, women, the men, because the women are emotional, discount what the women are saying. It's a common story. I'm sure it's never happened to you, but it does happen occasionally. And the men just discount the women, as women often are discounted. And again, this is key. No one, when they rewrite a story like this, would rewrite this back into the story. Like, if you're the disciples, and you're, so Luke is writing, he's there with Paul traveling on his journeys. Luke is friends with all the disciples. He's getting all of the the, the news back. If you're, if you're going to rewrite a historical account, you never make yourself look this bad if you're the disciples. You never would unless it actually happened. You don't rewrite a story that's this, this, this authentic that makes you look so bad unless it actually happened. And so Peter has a better response than the rest. What does he do? He runs in Peter-like impulsive fashion to the tomb to see for himself what's going on. Instead of sitting back and experiencing the group think that could have happened from the disciples, let's all talk about this, okay? And then they all talk about it, and they, they conclude together that the women have lost their minds, and they're not going to go to the tomb. Peter says, no, I'm going to go see for myself. And sometimes you need to do that. Sometimes you're involved in a family or in a community, in, in a group of peers who engage in groupthink about all kinds of things, but also about Jesus. And collectively, the community has determined that what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done is just kind of crazy. And so maybe we should listen to Jesus' teaching, and maybe the cross is okay because we can learn something there. But we don't need to get too serious about our faith. We don't need to really run ourselves and find out what Jesus is all about, but we would lose out if we take that path. You need to run and find out what is going on with Jesus. And so Peter runs, and Peter arrives, and he goes into the tomb, and he finds the grave clothes left there on the ground. This is important. This is an important detail because no thief, if it was a body-stealing event, would ever um, unwrap the body, leave the grave clothes behind, and then in, in other accounts, I, I can't remember if it's in this one, there, the, the clothes are neatly folded in the tomb. So no thief is going to unwrap the body. A, why would you do that? B, why would you leave the grave clothes there? C, why would you fold them up? Okay, so that's interesting. If it's not true, it never happens in this way in the story. But still, Peter doesn't believe yet. And for now, Peter's response is simply this. He is in the first minutes after the Takbanwa people learned about the resurrection. He just leaves at the end of verse 12, awestruck. He just leaves with his mind blown. He hasn't put it together yet. He hasn't put it together. You know, in the church, and I love the end of Philip's prayer, how he concluded that, we need to stand in awe of Jesus more often than we do. We need to stand in awe of the stories that we learn about Jesus more often than we do. When is the last time you stood in awe of God? that you were truly amazed by him, that you were amazed by the story of what Christ has done. Are you more amazed that Apple has released a latest version of their iPhone 14? Is that amazing? How long will that be amazing? Not very long. And that's, 
you know, one of the best pieces of technology we have, are you more amazed by a really well-prepared meal or by what an athlete can do at certain moments on the field? Is that more inspiring to you than the resurrection of the Son of God? Those things don't last. It's just a clip on SportsCenter. It's just a meal that you had. Those things don't last. It's just a piece of technology. In two or three months, you'll think it's old and boring, and you'll wait for the next thing. Nothing lasts. Nothing captures us like we should be captured by the resurrection of the Son of God. Awe and resurrection should go together, but often they do not. So let's see if we can try to capture our awe back again, and let's talk about the meaning of the resurrection So it's not an overstatement to say that literally everything changes because of the resurrection. But because that would make for an incredibly long sermon to talk about everything, I'm just going to talk about three things in this section, okay? So three things that change because of the resurrection, and these match the first section. Jesus taught us that those of us who believe in him will have eternal life. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, That story of the prodigal son is far more than just a hopeful metaphor about life change. That party that God throws for us in heaven is real. Conversion is real. When you turn from your sin and turn to Christ, it's more than just a personal emotional experience. You really pass from eternal death to eternal life because of Jesus Christ. In conversion, because of the resurrection, the father really does throw his arms around lost children. The Son really does find lost people, and the Holy Spirit really does work in our hearts to bring about transformation in our lives. Believing that conversion is, is a real passing from death to life is, a, is fundamental to a vibrant, growing Christianity. Believing that God makes dead people alive is fundamental to who we are as Christians. God does that work because the resurrection power is at work in our hearts At the beginning of the service, Joe asked us to pray for something that was on our hearts. What are we bringing in here? I bet a lot of you in that moment, just that five-second moment, brought someone before the Lord that does not yet know him, that has not yet responded to him. And what the resurrection means is that God is at work. He's at work through your prayers. Your prayers are not just to help you process what's going on in your life. No, those prayers are are powerful because where do they go? They go before the living God. And when you pray for your children and you pray for your parents and you pray for your loved ones, God is at work through those prayers. God is making dead people alive. Look at the disciples. Look at how God changes people's lives. Think about them. They go from afraid, in-group think, the resurrection didn't really happen. They're, They're afraid. They're locked away, cordoned off from the world. They are thinking about plan B and plan C and plan D. How can we get ourselves out of what we've gotten ourselves into? We've given the last three of our years to Jesus, and it turned out that he's dead. That's where they were. And then look where they are in Acts. Look at how they live their lives. Look at how they're giving their lives up so confidently, becoming martyrs, 11 of the 12 of them, because what? Because they believe that everything changed because of the resurrection. Because real life change and real transformation happens for depressed and afraid and unbelieving people. The resurrection is real and so conversion is real. Second of all, it should, it should help us stand in awe 
when we think about the fact that Jesus taught throughout his ministry that we, like the disciples, are called to die to ourselves so that we can then live for God. This is not a moralistic self-help talk for self-centered people to jettison whatever it is that is, is holding them back and die to it so they can go on and live a better life. This is not moral therapeutic deism. This is you really giving your life up and saying, God, I will follow you. I will follow you. And Jesus really giving you new life so that you can and will follow after him. You know, Satan, one of the things he loves to say is, you can't change. People don't change. In fact, in the 2016 election, Ben Carson, who um, is now one of, as a humble, godly man, a surgeon, brilliant man, ran for president. During that time, uh, as the media will do, they were trying to throw dirt on his resume and talking about what a violent person he was in high school and how somehow that was a character flaw for him. He grew up in an area of town that was really bad and made some bad choices. And, and Ben Carson was like, yeah, well, that's true, but I've been changed. I'm, I'm a different person because Jesus brought that transformation in my life. And I mean, that was like a feeding frenzy. And some of the notions that were thrown out at the time were such as this. Someone said, we cannot change in the pathological areas of our lives Carson should go talk to a clinical psychologist about this fact. The fact is that clinical psychologists or politicians, the fact is that managers and therapists don't all, some of them, some of them are great. Many of them don't understand the, the transformation or give merit to the transformation that Jesus Christ can bring. He absolutely can change you in the pathological areas of your lives. There's nothing beyond the reach of what Jesus can do. Best case scenario, you believe in Jesus and you have people around you who are doctors and, and people who can help you navigate the psychological world as well. But do not leave Jesus out of the transformation process. For me, as I grew up, uh, one of the things I struggled with the most was control. And when I couldn't remain in control, I would get angry really angry. Violent, sometimes, probably. Um, stories were told about me when there would be a lid left off of something like a ketchup bottle on the table. Before we had little flip tops, you had to actually have a lid. And I would yell at, at the table when I was like two years old, put a lid on it! Put a lid on it! And my mom was like, what in the world, you know? And I was like, that's probably not going to work out very well for me later. And it, it didn't, because I really wanted not just lids to be on things. I really wanted things to be my way. It wasn't really like any kind of a classic OCD thing. It was more comprehensive than that. I really wanted to be in control of kind of everything, if possible. And that led me down paths where, yeah, I didn't deal with that well, and I would get angry. In sports, I've told stories about me in sports. I would get livid. Uh, I cursed way more than most people playing sports because my anger was an issue, such an issue for me. And I'm not here to tell you that I'm completely all better now, but I will tell you this, that I've changed a lot. I've changed a lot over time because the Holy Spirit has worked in me. It's not because I read a bunch of books on how to be less controlling and less angry. It's because I've really trusted Christ that his way, because he's been raised from the dead and because he's at work in me, that his way is better than my way. 
His way is better than my way. My way often goes in the wrong way. And his way is better than my way. And the more I've learned that I'm following someone instead of having to control everything in my world as if I'm leading everything, the more I realize that I'm following the good shepherd, the more I can trust him and he has brought peace in my life. That's just part of my story. But for you as well, when you died to to yourself and you live for Christ, there's something very tangible about that. It comes to a head at certain points in your life where because he is at work in you, people like the Apostle Paul and Ben Carson and me and many others can change from, becoming, from being an angry, controlling person to someone who's experiencing God's grace. So life change is real. The third way that we can stand in awe here is Jesus showed us throughout Luke that he has the power to physically heal people and that he's even able to resurrect their human bodies from death. You think about back to Luke 7, he raises the child out of the casket so that he lives. And so he did live. That's just a little story in the blip of history. Super cool story, but so what if Jesus isn't raised from the dead? But because he is, that means there are millions and millions of resurrections that have happened in the world spiritually. In some cases, other people have been raised from the dead physically in living history too. That happens. But spiritually, people are, dead people are made alive. And when you die, and you think about those loved ones who have already died, I was thinking this morning, and can it be, my pastor growing up, Frank Barker, one of his favorite songs is, and can it be. He would say it in a lot of his sermons, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? The Lamb of God to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that Jesus Christ would die for me? He goes on, he, he just died recently. And yet he is now in the arms of Jesus. The Father threw his arms around Frank Barker as soon as he entered heaven. And that's the same for your loved ones. It's the same for you. You may fear death. You may fear death because you feel like because of your age it's approaching more quickly. You may fear death because we just lived through a pandemic. And we've heard about death so much that it, it's nauseating. Do we remember, Christians, that we have the power in us because of the eternal life we have in Christ? We will outlive this life. We will inherit new. We will not just be disembodied spirits floating around on clouds, playing harps in some weird version of heaven that no one wants to go to. No, you'll get a new body, and you will live a real life in heaven with Jesus forever. All will be made well. All will be redeemed. That is what happens because of the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. Going back to the story of the Takbanwa people, there's three things that I was able to see there. Uh, One is that they were treated as human beings instead of just being dollar signs, instead of just being part of the global economy. They were treated as human beings made in God's image. And so the, the community of the resurrection that was formed because of Christ and what he had done, we, we were able to help them be human beings who have land and, and don't sell out to the, the Western guys who came in. And so their lives were changed in that way. Just the, the, the body of Christ adds value to the story of their lives. The second thing there is that actually because Jody learned about them and their plight, 
many doctors have gone in now, and because of a lot of, a lot of the diseases that they were dying from, like malaria and hepatitis, now the life expectancy rate is much higher than 42. That's great. But the reality is that at the end of life, even if you live to 62 or 72 or 82, you still die. They need to be really alive, made alive in Christ, and that's the power that the resurrection brings. And the power of the resurrection is at work in this, this town. I was able to, I said, visit a worship service there. I'm sure Jody had timed it to where we could worship with them on a Sunday. And they meet in this large hut uh, made of coconut wood and branches as a roof, concrete floor. The, most of the service, it was translated for me, most of the service was familiar to me, the way that they did their worship service. Um, there were some hymns that were translated that I could sing along in English. But then we got to what would be like their vision moment section, and it was being translated for me, and it was an, this amazing thing happened. A lady stands up, and Jody's translating for me and the other guys on the team. And he's like, okay, now this lady is standing up. Okay, now she is singing a song of lament. She's singing a song of lament because in this village, it's very important when people burn their land. Uh, it's part of the agrarian process. And she and her husband decided that they were going to go against the, the rest of the church and the chief and when they were going to burn their land. And they burned their land on a day that was not sanctioned by the village. And actually, a, a wind came up on that day and the fire began to spread, and it burned up also the land of another church member. And so she and her husband was standing next to her. Apparently, he probably couldn't sing very well, but she was singing, and they together, she was singing a song of lament. It was a song of repentance to another family in the church about what they had done, a song they had written. And he said, Jody said, I was like, wow, never seen this in an American church. Um, a family publicly repenting to another family for something that they had done? Never. Okay. And then th it goes on, and he says, well, and then the rest of the story goes that now uh, the other family is getting up, and they came around, and their family members and their children all stood together, and they hugged, and they forgave each other publicly, and it was over. And he was like, and Jody added this, and he's like, you see why they do this is because for them— the New Testament has become the way that they live their lives. They, their community has now been reshaped around the resurrection. You see, they don't call their attorneys first. They don't call their financial planners first. They don't look on Facebook first or Instagram. They look at the Bible. And they go, what does my resurrected king want me to do in this situation? And then they do it. Because they have been transformed by the power of the resurrection. And Jody just said that this is just now the way they live their lives. The New Testament has become their manual of operations for how they do everything in the village. It's an incredible story. I wonder for us what God is sort of meddling with in our lives. If the resurrection is true, what are the things that you've kind of settled on in your life that you're like, it's just going to be this way. I'm just mad at this person. I just don't like them. This relationship I'm in, it will never change. This way that I manage my money, it's just the way that it is. I just do it this way. 
I just do because I need to, because we don't have enough. This thing, this thing, and that thing, and we've just become, this inertia has settled in. If the resurrection is true and Jesus changes everything, what should it change in your life that you've kind of written off as possible to be changed? What does God want for you? As you carry in those burdens, whatever it is in your life, maybe you're settled, there's something about you, some kind of addiction, some kind of issue that you have in your marriage or with your children, and you just think, it can't ever change. This is the way it's going to be. The resurrection changes everything. How is God at work in you? How does he want to change you today because the resurrection is true? What do you want to pray for and cling to him for because the resurrection is true? Let's pray. God, nothing is beyond your sovereign care. Nothing is beyond the limits of your resurrection power. There is no sin. There is no brokenness. There is no person. There is no relationship that is outside of the bounds of what you are at work in because your resurrection is real and true. So, Father, I pray for us. I pray for us in those painful places we've been carrying around prayer requests for years. I pray that we would continue to hope in you and trust in you. Lord God, we know that in this life you are at work. We also know that in an eternal life you're at work as well. Whatever doesn't get fixed here, whatever is broken here will get, will get fixed there. But Lord, we do long to see your resurrection be made more made manifest in our lives now. So Father, I just call upon you and I ask that you would help us to be in awe of you, to not limit in our own hearts and minds how great you are. But we would take your resurrection gospel and apply it in our lives. Lord, would you help us do that through the power of the Holy Spirit? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.